Let us pray. God, we are grateful to be here, Lord, in the midst of all that goes on in our lives, the ups and downs, the busyness, the, the turmoil, the struggles, the joys, Lord. In the midst of all this, we come this morning and we just ask that you would help us to clear our mind of those distractions and really focus on you and what you have to say to us today, Lord. Bless us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, let's read our uh, theme verse together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. An optimist is someone who expects a good outcome always and hopes for good things to come, whereas a pessimist has a tendency to always expect the worst. Now, there's many phrases that talk about an optimist, right? Um, the phrases like seeing the glass half full instead of half empty. Or if someone gives you lemonade, uh, lemons, what do you do? Turn it into lemonade, right? Or um, the silver lining in the cloud, right? There's these different kinds of phrases. So an optimist, when they see a glass of water and there's only half of water in that glass, they are thankful that they still have a half a glass of water to drink. Whereas an optimist is sad because it feels like the water is almost gone. I mean, the pessimist, thank you. The pessimist is, is sad because the water is almost gone, in their opinion. Or an optimist, if you give them a lemon, they look at it and they say, oh, wow, I can make some money out of this. I'll make lemonade and sell it, right? And thankful for that you gave them something. Whereas a pessimist will look at it and say, why did you give me this? What am I supposed to do with this lemon? Right? As we get to Acts chapter 21, we see that Paul encounters more trouble. In fact, he's with the disciples, and they try to keep him from going to Jerusalem because they know he's going to face more trouble there. But Paul, being an optimist, decides to go because he knows that the power of God will work through him, and that God will do great things in his life when he faithfully serves the Lord. This next Thursday at Fathom, I'm going to be talking about Romans 8.28, a great verse and a very uh, uplifting verse, an encouraging verse for us. And Paul himself wrote this verse, and let's read this together. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. What a great verse this is. We're called to be optimistic. Why? Because we have a God who will work out good in all things. Somehow God can take even in the worst of circumstances and God will do something good, work something good out of that situation. We won't know how. That doesn't mean the situation itself is good, but what it does mean is that God can take that bad situation, that difficult situation, that challenging situation, and he can bring some kind of good out of that situation. And so because of that, because of the God we have, we can be optimistic in our lives, even when things are not necessarily going the best for us. When I received my first call of ministry, it was at Pueblo uh, Ecumenical Church in Pueblo West, Colorado. And I had finished my seminary, I had passed my ordination exams, I had put out my resume, 
I'd gotten a call to be interviewed. Tammy and I went and flew out to Colorado. We, were, we interviewed and we went out and we uh, preached to the congregation and ultimately they chose me as their next pastor. And they were excited and I was excited and my ministry started there at this church. But it wasn't long into this into my first ministry, that I began to experience some difficulties. And the difficulties came from my staff. The first difficulty came from my youth director. We were running a program called Logos, and at Logos, you start with a dinner. And so the kids would come, and they have dinner, and then they go off to their other things after that. And you charge money for the dinner because it helps to pay for the food. But I found out that she was charging the volunteers as well. So I had a conversation. I said, I don't think we should charge our volunteers. I mean, they're giving their time. They're giving them themselves. They're giving their leadership. Let's not charge them. And she seemed to agree with me. Well, a couple weeks later, I found out that she was still charging them, even after she told me she wasn't going to charge them. So I call her in my office, and we had another discussion. And I asked her why she was still charging them. And she says, because I disagree with you, and I'm going to keep charging them. And I said, no, you're not. We're not charging them anymore. But that didn't make her happy with me, right? So she went behind my back, and she was at this event, and she was talking behind my back about me, saying things that were not true, but causing issues and problems for me. The second problem came from more of my staff. So I had a secretary, an organist, a choir director, and the youth director. And so I started having weekly meetings with my staff. Well. Not too long after we started meeting regularly, the choir director, the organist, and the youth minister, who were kind of like in this little group together, they basically said to me, leave us alone, let us do our own thing, we don't want to meet as a staff. And I said, no, it's important for us to meet as a staff, to have goals together, to grow together, to be in the same direction together, you know, to work together. And so because of that, I had issues with my staff. A divisive staff that I inherited caused me opposition and hardship in my first year ever of being a pastor. What a way to start ministry, right? It's really fun, let me tell you. <laughs> Good thing I'm still a minister, right? I didn't quit at the time. But see, we see that the Apostle Paul, he goes to Jerusalem, and he's going to experience problems, even though, in essence, it doesn't seem like he should be experiencing these problems, right? He's preaching about Jesus Christ. He's sharing his faith. He's leading people to Christ. And yet he faces this opposition and hardship, even in the midst of seemingly doing God's will and doing what is good for the people. See, the problem was is that the, the Jews, many of the Jews there in Jerusalem, had started believing in Christ, but they still were tied to the law. And Paul was teaching that the law cannot save you, that the law is not important in that way. And these Jews were getting very angry at Paul. They were still jealous of the law and were giving it much more importance than Paul was giving it. The way they said it was like this, thousands were believers but zealous of the law. Now, you who are parents know this tactic, right? I mean, don't your kids come to you and say, everyone's doing it, right? Or someone will come and try to persuade you to do something, right? And they'll say, oh, thousands of people believe this, right? It's a way of exaggerating a point to try to get you to agree with them and change your point of view. And so these 
these Jews were coming to Paul and they're saying, thousands were believing in this way, and so how could they be wrong and you be right? See what happens? You know, if you have numbers on your side, then you're right, correct? That's how people think. If I have a lot of people that believe this, then I'm right. It doesn't matter what's true or it's not true. It's, it's, I can get a lot of people to follow me and believe me, then I'm right. And this is what was going on. This is what Paul was experiencing. But Paul didn't change his teaching. I mean, Paul, remember when he was a Pharisee? He was very zealous for the law. Probably the most zealous for the law. Remember, he was the one, because of his zealousness for the law, that went out and persecuted Christians and arrested Christians and gave permission for Christians to be killed. He knew the importance of the law. Yet, when he met Christ, his thinking changed. He understood that the law cannot save you. Only Jesus can. And he began to write, the purpose of the law is to help us understand that we cannot save ourselves. The purpose of the law is to help us to see what is right and what is wrong. But the law cannot save us. Only Jesus can save us. And Paul was making that point very clear. Later on, he would write the book of Galatians. And chapter 3 is, is uh, strongly about the law and its shortcomings. So let's uh, look at that a little bit. Galatians 3, 10 and 11. In the yellow, read with me. For all who rely on the works of the law, Paul says, are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. See, for you to be justified by the law, you have to do everything that's written in the law. You can never break the law. You can never do anything against the law if you want to be saved of the law. You have to perfectly uphold the law every minute of every day of your life. And Paul says, that's not possible. You cannot be justified before God by your works, by following the law, but only if you want to be righteous, if you want to be right before God, there's only one way for that to happen, and that is by faith. And so the people who are zealous were made upset, and they ended up grabbing Paul, and they began to beat him. So let's go back to my uh, time at Ecumenical Church. It's not over yet, okay? So it, it went on. I'll tell, I tell you, it was not fun. So anyway, so this is what I started to deal with, and then it got worse. The, about a year and a half into my pastorate, the summer of 1999, the choir had a, a summer choir party, and they purposely did not invite me. And on top of that, one of the husbands of a choir member had a clipboard with a petition and was passing it around and trying to get people to sign this petition to recall me as pastor. So this is all going on behind the scenes, right? So then um, one Sunday I get called in the choir room after church, and there's the choir, and there's me, and we have this little encounter that's not fun. And it was not uh, pleasant, it was not loving. And they kind of attacked me at that point. And then they went further than that. Then they contacted the session, and they said, we want to have a meeting. And so we had a meeting one night, and the session and I walked in, and we sat down in the sanctuary, and the choir walks in and sits down on the other side. And you're like, and you know, this is not going to be a good meeting. And so on and on it went like this, that there was this dissension between me and the choir, and I didn't think I'd done anything to deserve that. It's just I was leading as I believed God had called me to lead. I was 
doing things that was trying to build the staff, build unity, create vision, lead us forward, and yet all these problems arise. And so I stayed about another year and a half before I moved on. And then I got my call at Long Beach where I was there for 13 years before we, and it was a wonderful ministry there, before we merged over with Lakewood. We're told in Acts 21.31, while they were trying to kill Paul, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. The whole city was aroused by this commotion, and people were running, some to just see what was going on, but some to join in the beating of Paul, and they shut the gates so that Paul couldn't escape, and they shut the gates so that it would take longer for the Roman troops to get there, because they wanted to kill Paul. They were that upset at Paul's words. The good news for Paul is that the information had reached the Roman troops, and they did come in, and they did pull him away from the crowd. And when they showed up, the beating stopped, and the, the crowd did quiet down a little bit. But you can only imagine what kind of shape Paul is in at this point, right? He's been seized, he's been beaten, this huge crowd. I mean, it says the whole city came. Can you imagine? I mean, just dealing with the, the experience of having everybody watch what is going on. I'm a basketball fan, and one of the interesting things about basketball is that um, if you're playing a game and one player kind of does a, a cheap shot or a foul on another player, and that motion kind of gets the attention of the referee, and the other player comes back and reciprocates, right? And fouls the other player back, and who ends up getting the foul called on them? The second player, more often than not, is the one who gets the foul called on them. Well, what's interesting about this situation is Paul, in essence, did the first bump or push or whatever by his preaching, and then they pushed back with their seizing him and beating him, and then the Romans' troops come, and who gets arrested? Paul gets arrested. Paul, the one who is being beaten, is the one who gets arrested in this situation. Now, I think they arrested him for a couple of reasons. They arrested him, first of all, because they were trying to appease the mob that had formed. And they were trying to stop this, this commotion, this fighting. But secondly, they believed that Paul was the instigator. And I guess in one sense he kind of was. His teaching instigated all this, although the teaching wasn't you know, violent and it wasn't attacking them. And, but he is the one who gets arrested. But the rest doesn't calm the crowd. And we read in verses 34 to 35, Some in the crowd shouted one thing, and some another, and since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. Read with me. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. To protect him, they had to carry him away and protect him so that the mob couldn't get to them. Yet there were some who kept following him. And the scripture goes on. The crowd that, kept, that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. Could you imagine being Paul in this situation? 
You're trying to tell them about the love of Jesus, and you're trying to tell them about how they can save, be saved, and you're trying to give them the truth of God, and you've been called to do this and empowered by the Spirit to do this, and you're being beaten, and they're saying, get rid of him. Why do they want to get rid of Paul? Why do they want to get rid of Paul? Well, they want to get rid of Paul because he was attacking the law. They wanted to get rid of Paul because he was creating guilt in them. They didn't like that he was saying that they were sinners in need of a Savior. They wanted to get rid of Paul because he was challenging all that they believed. Let's say that I'm in someone's home. And while I'm there, I attack them. Maybe I say something like, you're stupid. I don't know why I would say that, but let's just say I say that, okay? For the point of the, the example, right? And so you say you're stupid. I mean, that would, be, that would create a very uncomfortable environment, right? You're talking, and all of a sudden you hear someone say, you're stupid. And everybody kind of looks like, what is going on? What's... In fact, I might offend them enough that it might get me kicked out of their house, right? Like, why would you do that? Why would you call me that? That's really rude. This is my house, and you're calling me that? Right? That would not be a good thing for me to do. And I'm sure Tammy would be very mad if I did that <laughs> as we're driving home in the car, right? But let's say we're in a, a, a person's home, and this person's not a Christian, and we're having a conversation, and I start to tell them about Jesus, and I tell them about how they're a sinner and how they, they need to be saved, and I start going on and on and on, and they're feeling very guilty, and they haven't given me permission to have this conversation with them, that too might get me kicked out of the house, right? That would upset them and say, I'm sorry, I don't want you in my house, or I don't want to talk about this. If you're not going to stop, please leave, right? When we do those kinds of things, we can create a very uncomfortable environment. But you know what? This is what Jesus tells us. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. Right? You, you tell people what they want to hear, and as long as you tell them what they want to hear, then they, they like you, right? Oh, tell me more, tell me more. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Hates you. It's a strong word, right? Remember what I have told you. A servant is not greater than his master. Read with me. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. See, Paul is actually in good company here. Jesus himself got persecuted and killed, right? And what did he get persecuted and killed about? Bringing the love and the presence of God into the world. Telling people how the law would not save them. And how living for yourself doesn't save you. For caring for people enough to not want to see them lost in their sin, but to help them understand that in Christ they could be saved and have eternal life. This is the message that Jesus brought, and this is the message that got him persecuted and killed. How often does a family member or a friend see their friend or family member get lost in addiction? And you reach out and you try to help them. And you try to tell them the truth. This, this is not going to help you. This is not going to make your life better. This is ruining your life and you try to love them, and you try to help them, only for them to turn on you and attack you, maybe even be violent against you, 
to even have feelings of hate towards you because they're so lost in the addiction, they're so lost in this false way of living that they cannot hear the truth you are speaking to them. And that truth actually upsets them. This is exactly what's going on here with Paul in Acts 21. Here we see that Paul, though, has a true heart of God. I mean, this, this passage is going along, and you're just kind of cringing as you're reading it, thinking, oh my gosh, look what's going on with Paul. Look at what Paul is suffering. I mean, remember he knew back, the disciples saying, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to face hardship. I mean, they didn't know that maybe he would be beaten and almost killed, but they said, don't go to Jerusalem. And, and Paul says, no, I need to go there because the Lord will be with me, and the Lord is calling me to go there. And so in the midst of all the beatings, in the midst of all the attacks, in the midst of all that is happening, Paul says this in verse 39. I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. In the midst of the beatings and all that he suffered, the attacks, the verbal attacks, he says, let me speak to the people. He still wants to tell them about Jesus. He still wants to tell them about salvation. Now, this is not the first time this has happened, right? We know this very well. Jesus said, read with me, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divide up his clothes by casting lots. Jesus, in the midst of his beating, in the midst of the mockery of his trial, in the midst of his carrying his own cross, in the midst of his being, uh, having his hands and feet nailed to a cross, in the midst of his hanging there being crucified, in the midst of all the ridicule and the verbal abuse he was suffering while he was there, in the midst of all of this, what is Jesus' statement? Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. They are lost in their sin. And Paul says, let me speak to the people. I want to tell them about Jesus even more. Maybe my words will reach even one person out there. Someone in that crowd, someone in that mob, someone whose the Spirit's heart will touch. And if that happens, then all of this was worth it. That is Paul's attitude. Do you have that same attitude? Do you believe that the gospel is so important that telling people about the love of God, how Jesus has died for them, how they are lost in their sin, and only in Christ can they be found, only in Christ can they be forgiven, only in Christ can they find eternal life, that that is so important a message that you will do anything and be willing to suffer persecution to get that message to someone who is lost. That's what this lesson today is teaching us. That we need to have, well, we've experienced the grace of God in what Christ has done for us. We've experienced the grace of God and having our own sins forgiven. We've experienced the grace of God in being saved and lifted up and becoming his followers. And then God says, go and make disciples. And we see in Paul an example of one who truly holds to this call. And it's so important to him that even in the midst of his being beaten, he's going to preach to the people who beat him. 
the message of salvation. Know that at times when you speak the gospel to people, it might make them uncomfortable. It might even make them angry. It might even hurt your relationship with them some. But if God leads you to share the gospel with someone, then you need to do it. You need to follow through and listen to God's calling in that way. Be the eternal optimist who leads you to share the love of Christ with others and who believes that anyone, no matter where they are in their life, can be saved. See, that's what an eternal optimist does, right? Instead of looking at someone saying, oh, that person's so lost, they can never be saved. That would be a pessimist, right? An optimist would say, anyone and everyone, no matter where they are, can be reached by God and can be saved. And their life can be changed and transformed. And I believe that, and I'm going to live that in my life. Now, back to my story. A couple years after I left ecumenical church, I went back to do a wedding. And I went to church that Sunday, and I was in between services, and I was talking to some friends, and the, the choir member, the wife of the husband who tried to have the petition go out, her name was Phyllis, she started walking towards me, and all of a sudden, a smile came on her face, and she gave me a hug, and she said, how are you doing? <laughs> and at first, my, you know, I, I don't think, hopefully I didn't show it on my face, but in my mind, I'm like, what? <laughs> what is going on? But in the end, I said, you know, I'm not going to hold a grudge. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to let it go. I hugged her back. I said, oh, it's great, and I told her what I was doing, and and share with her. Her husband had passed away, and uh, we talked for a while. See, we need to live in the midst of that forgiveness, and we need to live in the midst of that love, and we need to live understanding that God is with us, and will work in and through our lives when we are faithful to him. Let us pray.